Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? Thinking Aloud Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with Psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is out-of-body experience, and I'm very honored to be here in the studio in Albuquerque with Nancy Trivolato. Nancy is the co-founder with Wagner Allegretti of the International Academy of Consciousness. They have a beautiful campus located in Portugal. Originally, Nancy is from Brazil. She is the author of Astral Projection, a Primer, Introduction to Out-of-Body Experience, and also Vibrational State and Energy Resonance. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad with your nice introduction, and it's a pleasure for me to be here. It's an honor for me to be with you. I know you've been teaching this material all over the world for over 30 years. You, you've set up a, an international organization with centers in, in many different countries. I've been interested in out-of-body experiences since the 1970s when I first met Robert Monroe and interviewed him, uh, but I've never had an out-of-body experience. I, I understand in your case, they began naturally when you were a child. It did, and that's what made me so interested in researching out-of-body experience. And when I started researching it, I noticed it was not so simple to do it. One of the experiences that I had when I was a child, and that's for me is what stayed in my mind, is that, well, often I would feel myself like floating or outside the body. It was very remarkable because sometimes I would look at the bed and there was my body and I was five maybe. So I would think, what's going on? I should be dreaming. I should be sleeping. I cannot be awake because it was very vivid. And I slept in a room at that time with four sisters. So I could look around and see all of them lying in bed and me there awake. But there was once, Jeff, I'm not exactly sure my age. I think it was around seven or eight years old. And I am from a very small town. Um, Jacutinga is the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's in the state of Minas Gerais in Brazil. But over there at that time, it was so such a small city. You know, there was some things that today I remember, and it was so funny, when people would pass away in the city, so they would go to the church, I mean, the priests there, and would, oh, this such and such person just passed. And the whole city would know. It was that small. We mm-hmm. would know everyone there. But... There was no hospital. I've never been to a hospital. Um, no kids happy playing. I've never seen anybody ill. But then once, Jeffrey, um, an uncle of mine had to go to a surgery, which I didn't even know he was ill at all. He had a bladder problem, and I came to know later. But in one specific night, 
And I was very fond of him, maybe because of that. In one specific night, I had one of these experiences that I never paid much attention to. For me, I would wake up and not think of them. But in that night, I ended up in a hospital in Sao Paulo, of course, a huge city. Out of your body. Out of my body. Yeah. So for me, it was like just a continuation of my day. But when I noticed, I was there. And all those huge aisles, and I entered in a room, and I could not understand what place was that. I've never seen a skyscraper before. We didn't have a TV at home, so we were from a very humble family. And then I saw my uncle lying in bed, you know, breathing with the help of some oxygen in his nostrils, and he had something, maybe sorrows injected in his vein. But the most remarkable thing to me is that he had some sort of drain that would go to a glass jar or something like this on the floor. That's what I remember. But that impressed me because sometimes it would drip some reddish liquid, like blood-like. And then that's when I asked, where am I? What, what is he doing here? What's going on? And I just returned to my body. Probably I don't even remember returning to my body, but I remember waking up, remembering of that. So then... When my uncle and aunt came back from Sao Paulo, I asked my aunt, look, why was he in such and such place? And she was, she was afraid, actually. What's going on with this child? And she just, no, changed subject. That stood in my mind. And, uh, but always, always, I wanted to understand what today I call consciousness. I mean, what's the soul? I've never been a very religious person. I have been raised Catholic, but I would barely go to the church or anything like that, which I guess was helpful. Let me look at the phenomenon without a religious standpoint. So more neutral, I would say. But I remember later thinking, I want to understand how we grow inside. That's how I would explain as a child. I want to grow inside. And I thought, Jeff, psychology would give me that. Mm. And I pursued to study psychology. But needless to say, psychology does not (laughs) teach us that, right? (laughs) No, but it's an obvious first thing that any young person would want to look into. Psychology should teach. Should, yes. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Hopefully, and nowadays, some areas kind of touch a little bit on the topic of Mm -hmm. spirituality. And I'm going to say something strange, perhaps. I don't like very much the expression spirituality. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you why. Because when we say spirituality, that person is into studying spirituality. It's almost as if we are studying something alien that is separate. And we want to exercise our spirituality, our spiritual awareness, I love it, but it puts, I think, the idea of the spirit world as a separate thing from this world. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather so much call it the multidimensional reality, Mm -hmm. because you and I, we are here, and ideally, both of us (laughs) should be being able to perceive all of the energies around, and our chakras, and how our energy interact, and how we are, in a way, connected to this spiritual reality, as people call, but it's it's all one thing. And my effort in this life has been so much 
to show that these phenomena, they are natural. We need to understand them. In the same way we want to understand a tornado and to be able to explain it, we want to understand all of the different phenomena that we see, phenomena that we see in physics, for example. Why not studying with the same seriousness this multidimensional reality and why some people are so sensitive? And they can pick thoughts and presences and things. Mm-hmm. And for others, that's not so important. And why some can perceive energy and be so balanced, mm-hmm. even though they have these subtle perceptions. And for some people, it can be so daunting. I know people that they don't like to go out because of this sensitivity. So I see that the idea would be that we would study this as multidimensional reality. Mm -hmm. And it's a different type of uh, perception, I would say, of our world, rather than I'm physical, and then when I leave my body, I am there in the spirit world. So there is a connection between all of this. And I think out-of-body experience is a bridge for us to understand that. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense to you? Well, you began having these experiences as a young child, what, five years old or so, uh, the experience of visiting a, a major metropolitan city that you, I presume, never been to? Never been to, no, not. The first and, time I went there was 10 years later from my experience. <laughs> So, have these experiences been ongoing on a regular basis since the age of five? Not really. I had many of them at a younger age. Now I do have them, of course, Mm -hmm. but not as many as before. Mm -hmm. At that age, not at that age, perhaps until my 13th, 14th year old, oh, it was so easy for me. Mm -hmm. So easy that sometimes... (laughs) I would think I had a very serious illness. And I would, in my mind, fantasize how my parents and my family would suffer so much when I would die because I would be sitting and if I wanted, for example, to detach my arm, I would just concentrate and I would feel my arm here and control it. But if I look down, my arm, my physical arm was here. It was that easy for me. Oh, no, not nowadays. I guess life stress. Traveling too much. It's been 28 years that I travel nonstop. So I do have experience, but not as easy as at that time. But I had some tough experience, spiritually speaking, when I was around 14, I guess, 13 mm-hmm. And that traumatized me. And from that point on, it was never as easy again. Mm -hmm. I could recover, but not as easy again. And I recovered with a method that I have perfected that I call VELO. Maybe we talk about that in another moment. But that is what helped me Mm -hmm. like to be born again, Mm -hmm. literally from those experiences. As I understand it, you and and Wagner 
became involved in the uh, work of a very famous Brazilian spiritualist medium. And if I remember correctly, he was also uh, a dentist, I think, a man of scientific training, uh, Waldo Vieira, who had set up a uh, an institute of projectology. Yes. That's what he called it, the, yes. the study of projecting yourself yes. out of your body. We started teaching naturally there because there was a big group of people lecturing and um, perfecting the ideas. So it was very nice. That was long ago, 90 or 91. So it's a long time. Mm -hmm. I'd say that is when I started becoming more interested in researching about the phenomena. And when I started studying it, I was thinking, Oh, I need to write a book. I love writing. Unfortunately, I have only these two books, but I, in my mind, and writing is my stuff in the world. But I have been working so much that I couldn't get the time to do it. But I will do my best to do it before I move on. But then at that time, I started collecting lots of different books on not only out of body experience, but how we sense a spiritual presence and what would be the connection of that with the out-of-body experience when what was this astral reality. And I started taking notes to write a book. Until I found the book I was hoping to write already existed, which was a book written from by, by Valdo Vieira. And uh, so he compiled lots of different studies from so many people throughout 20 years. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this such wonderful book that is called Projectology. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this book is still available. It's for sale. We, we sell it at the International Academy of Consciousness because it's very valuable. And the idea there that he had was to put together all different evidences and create like a basis for studies. So I loved that. Mm -hmm. And when I would read the book, I could see so many things that I had experienced and confirm so many sensations and get so many answers based on what I had experienced. So I got together with that group to help research because I got to a point that I, I studied what they had available. I read the books that were available and I said, I want more. Mm -hmm. And they said, there's nothing more. So, okay, so I will join to study, to create a bigger mess of knowledge that we could offer. And I have dedicated like good 20, 25 years into that. And I was very glad for his work on projectology. And one thing that I missed there, but I can understand how hard it was at the time, was better references. Because loads of things that I read in the book, I assumed it derived from his experience and his studies. But of course, 20 years later, I'm traveling around the world, browsing different, you know, libraries. And I found some of the key knowledge that was there that were not really generated by him. Mm. So um, the way I try to understand that, I'm not sure if I'm right, <laughs> is that everything was on typewriting. We didn't have computers. Maybe it was not so easy for him, but he always presented that as his ideas. Mm -hmm. I didn't pay much attention to that at the time. I found that many of the ideas were from you know, names that I respect so much, like uh, Silva Modum, 
he's brilliant, or he was brilliant. And Robert Crucoe, oh, wonderful, you know, somebody that stood so loyal to the study. So, and then, of course, I continued because mm-hmm. I was already engaged with researching with that group. And then we moved out of Brazil, myself and Wagner. We moved out in 94. But that was when new studies were being done there by Valdo. And it's amazing what a notion in between Mm -hmm. us can do, because we continued exploring, talking to scientists, observing our experiences, and trying to keep good judgment. Because if someone does not have self-criticism and does not stop to think, was this real, was this not? Oh, is this because of a movie I saw yesterday? What sort of experience is that? And if one does not acknowledge the limit of the knowledge, we cannot grow. Mm-hmm. So um, I continued with that style that I always had. But that group, little by little, became different. They became so much like, we know everything, we are better than any area of science. Science does not know anything. We have to create everything again. And we could see there was not a fact. There are so many brilliant people hoping to bring knowledge into this area. Here you are, and that's why I was so thirsty to be able to meet you in person, because I admire so many, those that are so much, those that for decades Mm -hmm. can stick to their principles of bringing light into this topic. And I cannot say it was his case. But that framework, that beginning, it was very good. It was very nice to hear somebody saying, we should have an area of science exclusively to study the out-of-body experience, which we still don't have. I guess the closest thing is some of the laboratories, we call it some structures that we have at our campus in Portugal. That provides good platform. But if I may share with you this, and I would love to hear your opinion on that, I think we are kind of stuck into the study of out of body experience. And I see that as a failure of all of us, myself including, because I teach about this and I lecture, I write books so that I help people understand their experience. But when it comes to furthering studies, what I see is that what most people do is that they repeat stories. If we think of near-death experience, I think near-death experience is ahead in these studies because there are so many cases compiled and cases that were even confirmed. People met some relatives that they never knew existed and even children's near-death experience help that so much. But it all stays in the accounts, cases. So that we have a lot. But understanding the out-of-body experience, I think we need more. There is a research study that I have conducted together with Wagner. We devised that and we put into action together that was to produce quantitative and qualitative studies on how we can 
recall an out-of-body experience. Because when we think about this for a moment, we are not inside the body. So we are not using the brain. So how can I transfer what we have experienced out there, what we have seen, what we have thought of, to the brain? And what are the aspects that trigger memory better? So the interest was more in understanding this process, because then we can further techniques for people to master more and to have more recollection and recollection that would be less altered because with the experience we have so many times I, I will remember one of my experience or recall and then I see mm, this here I saw such and such person maybe maybe it's just because I know this person and my brain connected this image with something I saw and that happens. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, the description is so precise. So what is the difference? What sort of techniques can we do? And we did present that theory that, theory, that study, and uh, we wrote a paper on that. It's very interesting. It's published. It's in one of the proceedings of, uh, of one of the conferences we held at the International Academy of Consciousness. But it's, uh, you know, still an ongoing process, mm -hmm. but that is very interesting. Well, what you're saying is that in, in your work, and, and I know you've trained probably, I think, many thousands of Many thousands, many. To, to have out-of-body experiences, and you have a successful method mm -hmm. that we'll be going into. But at the same time, the, the issue that you're facing is an issue that is uh, true all across parapsychology, I think, and um, remote viewing would be another area where the issue is how do you separate all sorts of other psychological processes from uh, what we could call uh, ontologically real? How do we separate fantasy from reality? And is there a gray area where they kind of merge? Yes, I think there is. Mm -hmm. And that gray area is what makes so hard they study. Yeah. And we have to acknowledge there are some out-of-body experience, like the one I told you when I was a child. I mean, yeah. I know what I knew at the time. And I know that I had never seen that. I could not imagine that at all, much less see my uncle in reco recovery state from mm -hmm. that surgery. So I know that is a very strong case. But there are some other experiences that, you know, we cannot even know. But there is a gray area here that mm -hmm. deserves more study. And I think if people could acknowledge that, those who want to leave the body, and so many we train and they learn how to do it in different degrees of success, but they learn and they can progress. But I think we need people more with a scientific mind that would help others to separate this. Because if we start merging this with the hope of having more out of body experience, that doesn't help, that hinders. One of the things that I always mention is that many people study like um, um, lucid dreaming. Mm -hmm. And they present lucid dreaming with examples yes. and cases that when I hear, I say, this is not a lucid dream. This is an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. But if you present that as lucid dream, 
people are less rigid, less, um, how would I put it, when they are producing the phenomena, doing the technique, they're more relaxed. It's a dream. I can do it. Oh, yes. Instead of saying, you have to get out of your body and you are going to be in another reality. So that relaxation, I think, helps mm -hmm. people. Also, the recollection, it favors because people are more like, no, oh, I remember this part, but I don't remember. Oh, because it's a lucid dream. But I also see here one thing that I don't like very much, that it's many of those who are teaching about it. They reinforce, they encourage the term lucid dreaming to describe out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. I think that doesn't help. That doesn't help furthering studies, that doesn't help science, and I think that doesn't help the subjects who have the experience. And if we are not able to acknowledge this gray area, there are some stuff that we are not very sure if it's a lucid dream, it's an out-of-body experience. If it was in our mind, if it was real, this gray area exists. We don't have to run from it because doesn't it exist in so many or if not all different disciplines of our scientific study? It's normal. Some things we know, some things we don't, some things we are researching. We can have that in relation to the out-of-body experience. And once we can explain this and that's how we approach our method of teaching, if we can explain this, people can be so much more confident in what they experience, in examining the different situations that happen to them. And that's what I would envision for our future into this study. That would be great. Well, I think there's a problem with language generally in uh, all of the areas of the paranormal because terms are not precisely defined as they typically need to be if you're doing an experiment. So the lucid dreaming undoubtedly overlaps somewhat with the out-of-body experience, as does remote viewing. It's true. Or uh, some people use the term bilocation. And, and we don't have precise definitions. I think of these things as a, as a spectrum. They sort of all uh, interrelate and overlap with each other. When we become more experienced into all of these phenomena and we try to be more technical, which is what I try to do, we can distinguish one from another and we can even explain what the differences are. Yeah. And I think few people are really into commenting, what is the difference between remote viewing and an out-of-body experience? And how can the experimenter know that? And sometimes the person has a remote viewing and it could easily be mistaken by an out-of-body experience and vice versa. But once you understand the differences, the technical differences, that is lovely because it's a completely new area of study. So by location, that is such a wonderful phenomenon, not so common, but that helps us to understand so many things and, uh, and most of the cases of bilocation happened spontaneously. But if we think even of PK, apparitions, clairvoyance, healing, all of this to me is how we understand our reality that is multidimensional and how we are integrated into that. Because the root 
of all of these, Jeffrey, is what we call subtle energy, bioenergy. That's why we can leave the body and come back. <laughs> That's why we can heal somebody. That's why the mind can access an information that you choose to. I want to see that person. Why I want to heal that person that is far away. But I'm going to concentrate. I will be able to reach it. How? There is something that connects us all. I mentioned a little about that in my TEDx talk. But of course there, you have 18 minutes. What do you do with minutes when you want to share a whole life's experience? One of your real expertises, as I understand your work, is that, and I think it began with Waldo Vieira, you developed a language that enables you to specify many, many of the nuances of this experience, the, the different subtleties of the movement of energy in and out of the body, the, the subtleties of, and particularly the subtleties of encountering uh, other entities when when you're out of the body and also uh, of great importance is to distinguish between physical and non-physical reality. Yes, you need a language to express that, right? Yes. Um, I, I think we do need specific terms for new aspects that we want to study because if we just keep using the same words that have always being used. It's like we already put a framework into the idea. We are limiting the idea to what has been studied. Having said that, I think the creation of some words are unnecessary. I think the old terminology is good enough and it doesn't produce that gray area. And, and then why not make it easier? I have been working a lot <laughs> to try to adapt my language to something that would be more easily understood without changing the core message. Mm -hmm. But that is a big challenge because one of the characteristics that in my study I have, I do not know if that's good or bad, but anyway, that's who I am. It's almost, I find it very difficult to address something in a superficial way. Mm -hmm. I like to go deeper into whys house, right? The mechanism and the limits of the knowledge in that specific concept. That's very difficult to do if we want to speak in a very plain language because we do need some elaboration of some ideas. But having said that, if that can be done in a simpler way, that should. One of the projects that I have for this year, and I hope I get there, is to revise my book because I think there's lots of terminology there that I can replace. I can make it lighter without changing the message. Mm -hmm. But some other things, I, people say, can you explain this in a way that would be easier? I can, but I'm not saying the same thing then. It's not the same message. Mm -hmm. And one of the objectives that for me is very important is how can we bring forth some sort of a arguments that allows other to refute, complement, study further, because otherwise we don't progress. It keeps just repeating and repeating. So I think that is key, in my opinion. And I had a project with Brenda Dunn and um, Jeff Dunn, 
Brenda's son. He's brilliant. And there was to do some conferences and studies on how to create a terminology that would be for, you know, for this area, but that would be more widely used. Mm -hmm. Because that is the challenge. Because how, what does it help if I say clairvoyance? And in your mind, you have one thing. And in mine, I have another. And we have no reference to go to. Of course, clairvoyance is an example that is obvious. We know what clairvoyance is. But if we do not have a reference that we can go to and deeply see what is the actual definition of that, we may be meaning different things, such as the lucid dream. Mm -hmm. So people use that in a, in a different expression. But the thing is, lucid dreams exist. Therefore, they are different from an out-of-body experience. So we should have a definition for lucid dream and detailed description and a definition for out-of-body experience and a detailed description so that we can further the study on both. And lucid dreams have some utilities, some benefits that can be so positive even in terms of uh, psychological aspects. But that is very different than out-of-body experience. How would you distinguish the two? The lucid dream basically happens in our mind. It's our elaboration of thinking, maybe even a bit using our subconscious knowledge, even things that we have experienced in previous lives. Why not? It's in there, even though not right now very conscious in our brain, but it's deep down us creating a reality that we are very lucid of it and we can elaborate and experience things that sometimes we cannot in the physical body. But if we examine what we see there, what happens there, it's us. It's a world that we know. The basis of that, it's we creating it. The out-of-body experience is an objective reality. We don't create it. If you and I, we are together in a place projected, you and I are going to remember the same thing. Unless in the recollection process, there was a mix. But then that experience has to be put aside. That's not a good one to be studied because we need to study those that the recollection are precise. So that is objective. There are cases, for example, of out-of-body experience that what we see can be totally unexpected. I have had experiences in which I saw ugly places. I was out of body experience I was never afraid of. The phenomena that I was afraid of were different things. Never afraid of the out of body experience. Never had one that I would say, that is awful. I felt my life was in danger. No. But some things that we see, um, they may be so strong that one can think, I could never imagine that from a negative side. Mm -hmm. But likewise, Jeffrey, sometimes we can be in some places and in the presence of some consciousness and some beings that even when you read the literature and you see the description of the most advanced, whatever, avatars or advanced enlightened beings, it's not yet close to that. Sometimes we even lack words to express. Mm -hmm. So that shows to us a range of reality that's very different. And then you could think, as I would, well, but that's just one person's experience. Yes. But then throughout this 
32, 33 years studying this and talking to thousands and thousands of people all over the world, especially sometimes when people come like to a private talk, like a private session, and they would describe their experiences. Um, because of my TEDx talk, I have had people that came to me and said, oh, I feel I can talk to you, but I never said this to anybody. I had an experience like this and this. Or some other guy that I, in my mind, I remember him so much. He was from New York. He never did any course. He never um, read any books, but out of bad experiences would spontaneously happen to him since early age. And he simply accepted that. And when he was telling me some of his experience, the things that we, he saw, and some not exactly as we would experience in the physical world, but then when he describes that, I said, and he would say, but I cannot explain this. How do I explain this I saw there or this event? And then when I hear, I say, the guy cannot imagine or create this unless he had been a researcher and knew deeply how the paraphysics, <laughs> right? Or how the spirit world works. Mm -hmm. He cannot. And then I hear that from him and from other people and other and other say, no, there are experiences that they are super genuine. People are having the same descriptions, mm -hmm. but how do we go deeper into analyzing that? So I think that is one of the key aspects. Well, what I think I hear you saying is out-of-body experiencers may encounter beings, uh, non-physical beings, uh, and they are objective even though they're not physical. And the way you can tell they're objective is because multiple people can have the same experience. Yes, exactly. And remember of the same thing if they were together. There, there are cases, and uh, and these beings, they can inform you of things mm -hmm. that you could not know based on your own mind. Mm -hmm. So we can say, oh, that was telepathy, or you picked that from the energetic information of an environment. So there are other explanations, but we have to exclude this is not the case. This is not possible. No, that specific individual was not in contact with this reality, not in a subconscious level. And then when you exclude everything, finally, you may have only the out-of-the-body experience as an explanation. And that is the case of many different things. Because there are things that we see that it could be remote viewing. So we cannot say, Every information you access is out of body experience. What if it was a remote viewing? What if you were perhaps in an altered state of consciousness during the night and some sort of um, spiritual presence there comes and gives you an information? Is it possible? Of course it is. That's a different phenomenon. But in some cases, it's not. It's something that it, there are other factors there that it cannot be explained under the light of these different phenomena. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we had a more precise description of each, that would be nice because I got an information of something that will happen in the future. Mm -hmm. There are different phenomena that can produce that. Yes. So, but some things you 
start just isolating the possible explanations, and then there is nothing further. It often comes down to language. It's it's said typically amongst mystical experiences, and you could consider out of body a, a type of mystical experience. They're called ineffable. That is, you you're having an experience which is so extraordinary. There's just no words. No words for it. Yes. Uh, and I think Waldo Vier uh, did a service by inventing what a hundred, maybe a thousand words. Yes, some are very useful. Uh-huh. Yes. They, so it gives people a way of seeing uh, the universe in a in a new way. So you inherited that. Yes, yes, I inherited that. I contribute to creating some expressions, but I think um, it's very important to wait what is helpful in terms of language and what would be more of a barrier than a help. Mm -hmm. But having said that, there's something about what you are commenting that is so interesting. That is, for example, if we think of the sleep paralysis. Um, When we mention sleep paralysis, we are talking about a phenomenon that is studied in medicine, um, neurology, of course, we can have a neurological explanation for this sleep paralysis, but in so many different instances, like I have had and other conscious projector have had, we can absolutely connect that with the moment of detaching from the body or returning. Some people would interpret that as if you have any sleep paralysis, it is because you are, for example, leaving the body, but sometimes it's not. It's just because there is like some sort of uh, energetic connection with the physical body that's not, it's a bit loose. Mm-hmm. And then we can feel that. But my point in terms of language is, you can ask people about sleep paralysis. When you describe the number of people who had sleep paralysis, huge. But when you look at the statistics of research that had been done, the places where you would say a much higher incidence of sleep paralysis are the places that have a name for it. Sleep paralysis is a name, but it's a medical term to say something is wrong with you in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, There is some sort of connection there in the brain waves between the state of being awake and being asleep. But when you say, what if sleep paralysis would have a name that would describe it completely disconnected with a process of the brain only. What would that create to people? So, for example, one of the populations that describe when you ask them, the higher incidence of sleep paralysis is Japan, Japanese people. But I have been 12 times teaching in Japan in total, perhaps I have lived there for one year and a half, two years, okay. because each time was for a good period of time. But over there, when you talk about sleep paralysis and the expression they use is kanashibari, when you talk about this, they say, yes, kanashibari. And then they recognize they have a word, they have a language to express what that experience is. And that language helps them a lot to acknowledge. And I think a big portion of what happens that sometimes people have out-of-body experiences and have other phenomena, but they cannot 
distinguish. They cannot identify it. It's because we lack proper terms. And when you say astral projection, but for many people that is a funky phenomenon that would happen to some. Maybe it's a bit a hippie stuff. I mean, yeah. <laughs> some people would yeah. think that. So that doesn't help. Whilst in Japan, if you say kanashibari, everybody accepts that as a phenomenon, serious one. They accept that in some cases of kanashibari, you would feel like a presence, an entity. Some cases would be nice, some not. That helps a lot mm -hmm. for the identification. And because of it, there are loads of experience that children have that later on they don't remember, they never acknowledged because they were not taught, but also because there are no expressions. What you're saying tells me that our culture, when it comes to these the, the, the almost infinite range of internal experiences, we are babies as a civilization. We don't even have the right words. and. To the extent that we do have words, I've heard from you that people don't even share the same meaning for many of the words we use. We use the words differently because our culture is in its infancy with regard to these experiences. Absolutely. And if we think of the most basic words, energy, subtle energy, bioenergy, what is that organ? What's the name we give to it? So that is, everybody talks about energy, the energy of the person. Oh, that place has a strange energy. Nobody's talking about electrical energy, but we just say energy. Yeah. And then it becomes so vague. What word should we use? I have struggled with that and I explain that in my book. What is the word we are going to use that would be more universal? And I don't find one. I normally use subtle energy, just for lack of a better one. But over decades, teaching thousands of people, you have, in your memory, uh, an understanding of hundreds of different subtle ways that people can leave their body, can return to their body, can interact with a wide range of different beings when out of the body, and you have for yourself at least developed a language so that you can understand these things. And so in a way, sad to say actually, your work is maybe a hundred years more advanced than the, than the rest of the paranormal community looking at these things because you've been so focused. What, one other thing that we have learned when teaching the out-of-body experience is that the ideal is not to start directly with techniques. Most people who want to learn, what they want is, please tell me nice stories and teach me a technique. And of course we can do that. And that's what most people do. And even they say stories and they tell people, oh, you can find a lover outside the body. You can find a treasure. It's possible. I'm not sure that's wise, but 
what happens is that once you learn the methodology to teach, and that is something that we have developed so well with the consciousness development program. Wagner and I, we have worked on that for decades because it's an ongoing thing. You do not create a program that you don't bring that up to date. You have to bring it up to date. And we are constantly doing that. But what we do, Jeff, is that we start by teaching how to sense energy, how to recognize the different type of phenomenon that one can have, how to perceive what is a positive type of energy and what's not. And especially, we want to teach people a little bit, the bit that we know and that has been confirmed with so many different cases around the world. That is how things work outside the body. Because reality is different. You can go out of the planet and return. And it's five minutes here. Or not even that, one minute. How can we explain that? Reality there is different. So if we do not understand the reality of the non-physical world, how can we then teach someone to be lucid there? To remember of the details. To have a framework in their minds that would allow them to recall and make sense of the experience, analyze it, because just recalling it, many people have experienced, and they just attribute that to the funniest of the things. Um, you know, it was God. I mean, I'm not saying there is no revelations of God. I'm not going to dispute that each person have their experience. But in those cases I have studied, those were regular experiences but people did not know how to interpret. So I think interpretation is super important there. And I think the more we can help people to understand, how does the non-physical body disconnect? And if you are close to the body, what's the reality? How do you feel? And when you feel heavy, you cannot move. Or when you feel you are so light, you, in a moment, you know, was like thrown out of your house even, and then you are seeing it from above. What are the differences? What happens from one night and one moment that you did a technique and the other one, and the, the perceptions and the experience per se can be so different. So I think when people, and that's a tip for those who are watching us, and I know so many people want so much to produce the out-of-body experience. One of the things is to find out one's own way of perception. Because people hear these stories and they are very helpful, I think. It produces like a platform for people to know what to expect. But many, when they read a book or something, they create an expectation of how they will sense their disconnection from the body. Um, how they will see things. And how soon will they be able to see the non-physical reality. That expectation is actually what makes it harder for people. So if we can teach someone to understand how things work and then say, try it and see how it goes for you. You are not in a hurry. We are learning step by step. That's okay. Oh, then it helps so much. So when we teach the, the consciousness development program, we go in a way that the first things is to learn self-defense to learn how to distinguish what sensation is yours or not yours, and how does it feel to be out of the body, it helps a lot even to have a framework to interpret 
best experiences. And then we go to techniques, and then we go further, and then we go to examining what is possible to be seen outside the body. And is that dangerous or not? Because people sometimes, they would be afraid of things that there is no reason whatsoever to be afraid of. But a simple experience like walking, you know, by a beach can be dangerous if there are some bugs there in the sand and you are not informed. So you do not have the proper shoes. So yeah, you need to know how to behave in each situation. But dangerous? I wouldn't call it dangerous ever. So just to be clear, when you refer to the bugs on, on the beach, you were using that as an example of, of the sorts of things that, that we might have to deal with in physical reality that are parallel. Parallel. That the, are natural things that, mm -hmm. you know. In that case, if you only know um, that you can use some protection, like, for example, for swimming in that beach, or that you can perfectly go to this area, or there are hours that you can go or cannot, then you are safe. But I have to tell you something. The physical reality, swimming in a beach where there are jellyfish, is so much more dangerous than leaving the body. And there are reasons for that. The problem is that people leave the body without knowing the, the rules, how to behave. And the reason for that is that the jellyfish is a very objective thing. One can hurt you here in the physical body. But in the non-physical body, what is it that can hurt you? Because if the non-physical body, let us think together for a moment. If it's the same that we have, one life after another, and there are so many studies showing that, I'm going to not go trying to go into arguing. Reincarnation yes, would be another topic. Exactly. But if from one life to another, we change our expression just because we start identifying ourselves with a different body, then that body is moldable. And in some cases, over there in the out-of-body experience, you can even present yourself with different face, with a different appearance. If that is true, what can hurt you? Let us think. What is it? It's pretty much like some cartoons we see or some heroes that they are indestructible. What hurts us is in here. The fear or the trauma or feeling paralyzed or getting some sort of energy that is uncomfortable and this can this can happen. Somebody with a bad energy you meet outside the body and you feel that new thing and you come back feeling that energy. All that totally exists. But that is because we are not being able to interpret the energetic reality of that. So it's not hurting the body per se. It's how we handle energy reality. But having said that, doesn't it happen here in the physical body? Haven't we met people that sometimes they say a simple thing to us and it's so awful that you can be for three days feeling bad energy because of that? I hope you never had that. <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid I have, yes. <laughs> so that is the thing. So I'm not saying about something that is particular to the out-of-body experience. I'm saying of something that is natural to our perception of energy. Mm -hmm. And yes, that can happen outside the body. But as that also happens here. And we should be able to understand 
and to handle that both here and out there. Is it easy? Sometimes not as easy as we would like, especially for those who are sensitive to energy. But then what I'm trying to say is what are the real danger there? It's more our ignorance, and I'm going to include myself in that category because we only know what we know. We do not know what we still don't know. And it would be super foolish, stupid to think we know a lot. I mean, it's not possible. I am very lucid. I am only lucid of the things that I am lucid of. So nobody can claim that. But um, I definitely can say in relation to these type of situations that we face outside the body, it's a matter of understanding energy and the mechanism of that in the different type of environments that we can be outside the body. Well, of the thousands of people that you've trained, I imagine there have been occasional examples where uh, a person maybe got triggered in, in a way that was unpleasant. Absolutely. And I can say that about myself as well. Mm -hmm. Some situations that you end up in a place that the energy there is not nice. Mm -hmm. And maybe there are others around that you kind of feel their intention. It's not so positive. But if you understand what's going on, you react. You know how to react. You mm -hmm. can react because out there, we are as powerful as our awareness of energy, our capacity to control energy. And in relation to that, no one can be more powerful than each of us in relation to our energy body. What makes us vulnerable are the areas that we are not aware of. And one of the things that some non-physical beings would use sometimes to get to us is uh, something that we see a lot in sci-fi movies, even in Star Trek, mm -hmm. using something that is of a psychological importance to us, something that would touch us emotionally. And then once we feel that emotion, we become more vulnerable. What will happen? That uncomfortable energy. So I've had that, but still what do we do? We cleanse our energy, we come back, we handle that. It's nothing permanent, but some people, now it's not related to the out-of-body experience, but I would like to clarify about that, mm -hmm. if you allow me, Jeff. I know so many people that they study about this and they feel confused. Some people, they indiscriminately try to have psychic experience of different type, and they look for avenues, like shortcuts, that are not the most natural ones. Or they go to places that not necessarily the energy there and the type of uh, spiritual beings working there are the most stable ones. Then they go back home and they have some strange energy lingering with them. And they can have that for a week, a year. Two years. I have seen people that have been struggling with that for very long. And then, in many cases, I have been able to help them. Sometimes I talk to people, like, in private conditions so they can share deeply. And I'd like to think that I make a big difference in their lives. But this can happen. And then people say, you see, out-of-body experience is dangerous. No, it was never about the out-of-body experience. It's about 
how we handle our energy. And people can have the same bad effect just by visiting a ritual that they never try to leave their body, but they go back home with that sort of energy. This exists. And I think it's so much better when we can bring the reality to surface so that those who sense any of these, they can make sense of what's going on instead of thinking, oh, it's just in my mind. Oh, I'm crazy. Oh, I need some antidepressants. Oh, you know, whatever. <laughs> because people need explanations. Well, there's been a lot of talk lately about something uh, that has been identified as the hitchhiker effect, where people visit certain locations, such as most famously the Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, where a lot of paranormal activity seems to occur, and they go back home and they have the experience that they brought something with them. Uh, it had nothing to do with an out-of-body experience, but apparently some sort of a paranormal attachment can occur. And what you're saying is, I gather what you're saying, is that the same energetic techniques that you teach people are relevant. Are relevant inside the body, outside the body, in those conditions. And ex you, what you are saying is exactly what, what I am talking about. Yeah. And that can happen here in the physical life, but also in the non-physical one. And the, the techniques can not only help people to be stronger with energy, but to identify what is in there. Because if I would go to a place that I sense really awful energy, I don't open up as much. I may still get some bad energy, but I don't open up so much or I don't visit. I don't go. Why would I go? But it's so strange. People have such a curiosity that sometimes they put themselves in harmful condition to test how much is possible to have experience with evil beings and the supernatural reality. Have you ever met people like that? Well, I, I may be guilty <laughs> myself to some extent. I probably exposed myself to situations that uh, other people uh, would have advised against, did advise against. But I, I think I've been either lucky or probably more likely protected. Some people naturally, they have a structure in their energy body, and that is my passion study that is it's almost if we were examining physical body you can look at somebody and say oh this person has good muscles naturally can produce muscles easily or this person has weak joints or whatever you can study the anatomy of the physical body and the physiology and have proper methods to fix what is possible <laughs> right? Because in our physical body, there are things we are not going to be able to change. In terms of the energy body, it's exactly the same. So people talk about chakras, and I have a very big study on chakras. It's a book that I intend to write, and I have been studying this for my whole life, almost. <laughs> it's bad to say even how many decades. I'm not going to go into that. I am... When I study that and I see the characteristics of the chakras of each person, it varies. It's like saying this person is more sensitive to medicine than that one. That one can take anything. The stomach is not going to feel anything. For that one, it's more sensitive. So if we could have some reference about the energy body, 
in which we could identify, oh, this person is naturally stronger to this sort of energy, but very vulnerable to that type of energy, which is just a characteristic goodness. It's not good or bad. It's not merit or demerit. It's, it's as much as the physical body. Mm-hmm. That's what I love to bring so people can understand. They can study about themselves. Don't try to be who you are not. But according to your physiology of the energy body, mm-hmm. I would say energophysiology, why not improving, adapting, learning? And if somebody is very flexible, maybe too flexible, well, maybe you can do some yoga poses that other people cannot. Use that to your advantage. But Jeff, it's so amazing. People do not know how to understand their energy body. They do not know how to use the skills they have. And then they dare into things that they shouldn't. So maybe you were lucky enough that you <laughs> delved into some areas there and you came out sharp. <laughs> I, I was very lucky. I feel like I've had a, a, a blessed life. Uh, and of course, a big part of your expertise is the study of uh, bioenergy, subtle energy. And fortunately, I, I want our viewers to know we're going to do a whole interview on, on that topic. Up to that. Yeah. And, and the, the point, though, that we need to make is that the study of the out-of-body experience and the study of clairvoyance and the study of the energy body, these are all intertwined. Completely all... intertwined. It's hard to understand one without you understanding cannot, all of yes. them. You cannot have a nice out-of-body experience if you do not have some energetic skills, which some people have naturally. I'm not saying they need to read a book or read my book or, or do a course. No, it's natural to some people. But there's so much that we can learn, so much that we can do when we understand what's operating behind it. And uh, it's possible. You know, I have a motto. And my motto is, everyone can. Everyone can. Everyone can learn. Everyone can develop. This is not for special people. It's possible. Of course, we have different talents. Some people progress very quickly into an area and not others. But everyone can progress. So even I, who am not very good with music, if I dedicate, I can play something on the piano. I can learn. Am I going to dedicate time to this? I I'd love my day would last 36 hours, but with 24, I, I'm not going to dedicate to that. <laughs> but everyone can do all of this. Well, you are a rare person to say you've devoted uh, most of your life to the study of the out-of-body experience. Very few people can say that. So it's it's heartening to hear you tell me, a person who had never had a conscious out-of-body experience, that I can do it. And maybe I yet will. Yes, maybe you learn a little bit, some tricks here and there, and you do. One thing that I have experienced in my life so many people I have spoken with, and they say, I'm not very good with energy. Oh, I, I cannot do this and that. Because for them, it's so natural that they consider they would have to experience some things according to what they have read in a book. And the experience is different from one person to another. It's always different. We, there are no single consciousness would be identical. 
There is no single out-of-body experience who is identical. For those who are watching us, a tip is never expect to have an out-of-body experience that feels the same as another one that you have had. Because so many people, Jeff, got one and they keep pursuing that for 50 years, trying to get that one again. That one was that one. It's not going to happen again. But if you learn what was operating behind it, you can produce others. Oh, I'd love that you know, more people would embrace this because it teaches us about the importance of life. What is important in life? Not that I, I know. I mean, I, I struggle with so many things. We are limited beings, imperfect beings. And the first thing we have to do is to acknowledge that. But that does not mean we cannot study the methods to be more perfect. We can study a perfect body with a perfect physiology. We can even find some people that, you know, they can walk naked on a freezing area. No problem. And for me, if it's a bit cooler, oh, I'm there already. It's all sort of problem. So, yes, yes, we can acknowledge that. But that does not limit science and the whole area of study of biology to study what would be a perfect human body, even though we are all going to die of something one day. So, studying what is the ideal, that is lovely. And one of the things that we dedicate when we leave the body, what would be a more evolved consciousness? So many people have their own definitions. Mm -hmm. But when you have enough out-of-body experience and exam things, I think the evolved is so much ahead of what most people would see. And I am so far from that. Goodness. Mm -hmm. I acknowledge it. Well, when you're out of the body and you're traveling through non-physical, super-sensual reality, the, the possibilities are, I, I would think, almost, not almost, infinite, infinite, and including traversing to what people have called, let's say, the seven heavens, each one higher than, than the next. Yes, yes, and, uh, and finding places, I mean, non-physical places that I mean, it's beyond anything that could be said, could be described. Mm -hmm. As you said, ineffable things. You cannot even get to find the words to describe the specific color that you saw. Mm -hmm. Illumination. Mm -hmm. And some out-of-body experience, they can be so amazing because our energy perception, here there are so many different senses, energetic senses that mm -hmm. we get, the perceptions. Mm -hmm. And we are usually not trained to recognize them. Yeah. On the contrary, we are trained in our culture, in our society, to reject them. That's not objective. That's only in your mind. Or you are imagined. This is not possible. So that creates a limitation for people to recognize their subtle senses. But when we are in an out-of-body experience and all of that is at super peak condition there, we can have, for example, the perception of energy of an environment that is so harmonious. It creates such a resonance of energy, which is one area that I study, that is almost as if you could hear music. There is no one playing. Don't understand me wrong, but it's like the feeling of that, the 
brain of the non-physical body almost interpret as music, or at least when we come back here. And so many inventions and even compositions have been inspired in situations people have experienced in out-of-body experience. The out-of-body experience is much more common than people would realize. Mm. However, one thing that we expect, and I mean we, all of us, I, I hope so at least, is to have an out-of-body experience in which we can have it from the state of being awake. You are awake, you are conscious. And then you detach. You are feeling it. You are knowing it. And then you do something consciously outside the body. You can choose what to do, what you observe. You can do experiments. I have had some like this that I say, oh, I always want to do this. So I'm exper some experiments work. Some didn't. But that's natural. But I was super conscious. And then I come back and I see my body in bed. And I can jump in and I can open my... So that is the ideal. And I think if we train ourselves for this... There's loads of other types of experience, real ones that we can have. But this type of experience I'm describing, it's not so common. The most common are those that are, you know, more spontaneous disconnection. And it's hard to recognize sometimes. But what you're saying is that the, the, the possibility exists to actually perform scientific experiments while you're out of the body. Absolutely, I'm saying that. The difficult thing would be bring data enough. But I think we have, you know, a myriad of data when we examine cases of out-of-body experience. And some are going to be in that gray area, so we put aside. Some is just a crazy story you put aside. But some, they may sound crazy. But they are logical once you understand the rules of the non-physical dimension or the non-physical world. And then we study those, which is published in so many different areas. It's, it's out there. So I love it. Well, Nancy Trivolato, what a pleasure to have this conversation with you. I know we're just scratching the surface with all of your decades of, of experience. I, I, you've given me a hint of uh, what can be done. I'm delighted to be able to share your wisdom with the New Thinking Aloud audience. And I'm looking forward to more conversations with you while you're here with me in Albuquerque. Likewise. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for being with me. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. We've just released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.